Hello and welcome to Ocean Matters from the Bertarelli Foundation. I'm Helen Cheresky. This month's podcast adventure will be to explore the deep sea. What's in it, why it matters, and how the top of the ocean is linked to the bottom. I was especially excited to interview the pioneering American oceanographer Sylvia Earle, who lived underwater when the idea of doing that was only just emerging from science fiction. I'll also be talking to Professor Carrie Howell from the University of Plymouth. She's working on understanding the hidden webs that connect the ocean. And I'll be talking to Professor Alex Rogers from RevOcean, whose aim is to push forward the science that will let us keep the ocean safe. I've been privileged to spend thousands of hours in more than 30 different kinds of little submarines to live underwater, not just once, but 10 times. The impact of heavy steel trawl doors and rollers on the bottom of the trawl is absolutely devastating. All that is left is literally uh, bare rock and essentially gravel formed of the fragments of, of dead coral. When we look up at the night sky, we can see the cosmos in all its glory and the constellations of familiar friends that most of us learn as children. But even though the deep ocean is far closer, it seems far more mysterious. It's tricky to get to, but it certainly isn't empty or featureless, and it's well worth a trip to see what's down there. Let's start our journey to the deep on the east coast of Greenland. Summer sunlight streams into the surface water, fueling the growth of tiny marine algae, the phytoplankton. These sun eaters harvest the energy that sustains almost everything else in the ocean. Drifting downwards, we pass through the ocean's busy upper layers, zooplankton feasting on the phytoplankton, which feed the fish, which feed the microbes. But the light fades quickly, and even a hundred metres down, the sun eaters are scarce. Instead, small shrimp-like creatures hide in the gloom, snatching whatever scraps fall from above. A shoal of tiger-striped mackerel flashes past, nipping at any smaller fish unlucky enough to get in their way. 300 metres down, we land on the continental shelf with a bump. The great continents reach out a little way under the sea, forming this ledge covered with detritus washed off the land. Animals live here, in the sediment, but this is not the deep sea. We've barely reached the region known as the mesopelagic zone, where the last tiny bits of twilight are supplemented by flashes and streaks of bioluminescence from squids and jellyfish. It's only because so many species use these chemical reactions to generate light that it's even worth having eyes down here. Rolling further down the slope, we finally find the end of the continental shelf and the start of the open ocean. This place is the top, only the top, of the greatest waterfall on Earth. Below us, cold, dense water from the Arctic is gushing through a notch and over the edge, down and down into the real deep ocean. An eerie, deep thrumming swells out of the black and then fades, the call of an unseen minky whale. Dragged along, we flow in the blackness towards the Atlantic. To our left, the giant, jagged mountain chain that's the Mid-Atlantic Ridge marches southward, the zone of volcanoes, earthquakes and hydrothermal vents, which exist because the seafloor is being ripped apart by plate tectonics. 
the hydrothermal vents provide energy from deep inside the Earth for whole colonies of weird life forms, all locked to their islands of chemical fuel. But we steer clear, following the waterfall down a whole kilometre and then another, until three and a half kilometres below the ocean surface, we arrive on the abyssal plain. It's flat and cold and quiet. Life is here too, but it's rare and moves slowly, fed only by the scarce pickings discarded by those higher up, clusters of organic matter, flakes of bone, perhaps a precious carcass once in a while. This is the library of the deep, where the signature of the centuries is laid down in sediment. We don't yet know it well, but this part of the ocean engine is, like the rest of the ocean, a critical part of our planetary life support system. The Chagos Archipelago isn't just a collection of random bits of rock perched in the middle of the Indian Ocean. You need an underwater perspective to see what those islands really are, the peaks of a steep underwater mountain ridge that soars up from the deep sea floor but barely pokes into the air once it reaches the surface. This is a great place to study deep reefs because the mountain falls away so steeply that you don't have to go very far out from land to reach very deep water. Scientists from the Bertarelli Foundation are studying reefs that sit around 200 metres deep in this region. Professor Kerry Howell from the University of Plymouth studies the ocean connectivity of the Chagos Archipelago. But that's not the only thing about the deep sea that sparks her interest. I mean, I think there's a lot to be said for the unknown, isn't there? You know, if aliens came to our planet, it would be planet deep sea, not planet Earth, as it were. It's just so different to the land and the shallow water. And by looking at what's different, it helps us understand the whole a lot better. What about the depths around the Chagos Archipelago? This little, one of these features on the ocean floor, this little pinprick in the middle of the Indian Ocean. What lives there? Is it the same as what lives near the surface or is it different? So we've been looking at the area really between about 50 metres and 200 metres, which is technically still shallow, but it's still poorly known. There's still a lot of coral, incredible amount of coral, very beautiful, lots of fish, diverse life. But it's not the dominance of the sort of stony corals that you see on shallow water reefs. Very much becomes dominated by things like sea fans. So these these big sort of fan-shaped structures, really intricate, that sort of waft in the current. And great shoals of fish, uh, sharks we've seen down there, rays just moving around above these sort of forests, if you like, of these sea fans. We know we are told often that the corals near the surface are suffering from ocean acidification, from warming waters. What do we know about how the slightly deeper corals are doing in, in the face of climate change? So I should say, I mean, the mesophotic corals, which are the sort of intermediate depth corals that we're looking at, we didn't know a huge amount about how much they are feeling these impacts. But there are also much deeper coral. And those coral reefs we do know are feeling the effects of climate change. These corals use a form of, of calcium carbonate called aragonite. And as the ocean becomes more acidic, the depth at which calcium carbonate is found in the form of aragonite is shallowing. So the very deep corals are actually being moved out of their favourite habitat. So we know the very deep water corals are suffering and we know the shallow water corals are suffering. And so what's happening to those intermediate corals 
you know, we we thought they might feel the effects of climate change less, but that's not necessarily what we're seeing. And and I don't want to give too much away because this is all unpublished work, but I assure you that they're, they're not escaping. And that's really a bit sad to learn. Well, let's get on to how you look at these things. So you turn up, it's a research day. What happens next? How do you, how do you find things out? It's quite fun, actually. <laughs> so we use something called a remotely operated vehicle. And we, we deploy it off the back of a research vessel and it goes in the water. And then there's, there's someone piloting it, a bit like a video game. It's quite fun. So you've got a screen. You can see what the ROV sees on your screen. You've got a, a joystick old-fashioned joystick, get it down to the seabed. We've got the lights on, we've got the camera on. And we're just trying to fly the vehicle as close as we can to the seabed, but without disturbing the coral. So we don't want to be hitting them. So we're flying usually about a meter off the bottom. And that gives us a really great view of the animals that are living there and helps us to be able to identify them from the imagery that we're collecting. But the other thing that vehicle does is it has these mechanical arms. And so we're able to pick up pieces of coral. And it's important for the work that we're doing in understanding the connections between the shallow and the deep water. So we're looking at the genetics of these corals, the population genetics, a bit like DNA fingerprinting. We're trying to see who they're related to and how closely are they related. We just break a small bit off and bring that sample back to the surface, although that's not as easy as it sounds. <laughs> and so what we're trying to understand then is how connected are those populations to other reefs in the Indian Ocean. Because what that will tell us is that if other reefs in the Indian Ocean are, are really suffering from a variety of human impacts, cumulative human impacts, so not just climate change, but other things as well, and they're really being degraded, then we can at least take some comfort in knowing that this population is connected to that population. And so there's a potential for recovery. So if we understand those connections it provides the knowledge that will allow others to manage the ocean basin. You know, as scientists, we're here to provide that information to help society make those tough decisions that it needs to make. Professor Kerry Howell from the University of Plymouth. And you can find out more about Kerry's work and watch videos of the seabed on the Bertarelli Foundation's website, marine.science. Humans love trying to figure out a good mystery, so questions about the deep sea have received lots of attention throughout the past centuries. The ancient Greeks and Romans built their civilizations facing inward towards the Mediterranean Sea, a situation Plato described as being like frogs around a pond. The Roman naturalist Pliny the Elder confidently stated that there are only 176 species in that sea, perhaps believable at the time, but completely eclipsed by what we know now. In the 1870s, the British ship HMS Challenger set forth on the first global oceanography expedition, carrying 35 thermometers, 45 kilometers of rope, 5,000 glass tubes, and a lot of other things, everything else they needed to answer questions about the depths during four years at sea. And Challenger made an amazingly good start. But humans only began to experience the deep sea in 1930, when William Beebe and Otis Barton climbed into a deep sea submersible and rode their iron bubble downward to cross a new frontier. One person who was inspired by the work is her deepness, Dr Sylvia Earle, who set the women's record for a deep sea dive at 1,250 feet. As an explorer, oceanographer and former chief scientist at NOAA, the American National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, 
Sylvia has devoted her life to understanding our complex ocean and fighting to protect it. She started by telling me what drew her into exploring the deep sea in the first place. I was mesmerised by Bibi's descriptions of what it was like to get into this little steel ball with his engineer buddy, and they had a little window to look out into the sea. And as they descended, he describes the change in light from shades of blue to really deep purple blue and then finally black at about a thousand meters. And what he saw was not completely dark, but like a galaxy of luminous creatures. The flash, the sparkle, the glow of living light. I determined right then that someday I wanted to be out there, down there, to see what he saw and experience what he experienced. In the 1960s, there was great feats of imagination when it came to what might be out in space. Big thoughts about going to the stars. But there was also another group who were exploring the oceans. Tell me a little bit about the stars in the ocean. You're right, that in the 60s there was this great era of technologies that for the first time provided the promise of going high in the sky and in parallel to go deep in the sea. I was invited in 1970 to live underwater. For me and for my fellow aquanauts, it was two full weeks. It was during a project called Tektite. My team was of just women, and there were five of us, and we were able to spend two glorious weeks living underwater. What a concept. Day and night, to be able to have a safe, dry place where we could sleep. Sleep was short because we wanted to be out in the ocean as much as we could, getting to know our neighbors, individual fish. It was kind of a breakthrough. We got to know individual barracuda. We got to see big silvery fish that came as a group and swam at night by the light that we had in our little underwater home that attracted small crustaceans and small fish that were attracted to the crustaceans. And then the big fish were attracted to the little fish, the food chain in action right before our eyes. And then we could go out there and be a part of it. Fortunately, we weren't consumed by any of the creatures that were attracted to the little fish. <laughs> In 1970, towards the beginning of your career, and what did people know about the ocean back then? We've probably learned more about the ocean, well, certainly since the 1970s, than during all preceding human history. Because we have the technology that enables us to go into the ocean, explore the ocean from the inside out, and to look at the ocean from high in the sky to show how the world has changed, is changing. And I've been privileged to spend thousands of hours in more than 30 different kinds of little submarines to live underwater, not just once, but 10 times. There is so much that we still don't know. Only about 10% of the ocean has been seen by anybody. Even the deep sea, where we have sent probes, where we have used sonar to be able to map the ocean, we've only carefully mapped about maybe as much as 15% of the seafloor with the same accuracy that we have for the land or even for the moon <laughs> or Mars. We know the surface of the ocean, but we don't know the ocean. Well, let's maybe pick up on that because you are, obviously, you've spent, like as you said, you spent a lot of time there, but it, I want to pick up on one foray beneath the water in particular, which was in 1979. Uh, you set the depth record of 381 metres in a gym suit to the ocean seafloor near Oahu in Hawaii. What was this What was this entry to the ocean like? What was the experience like? 
a company called Oceaneering gave me permission to use the gym suit for a dive in Hawaii to go pretty close to 400 meters, 1,250 feet, to the edge of light, to the twilight zone. We devised this, <laughs> this unique approach to strap me in this system that really looks more like an astronaut suit, arms and legs, but one atmosphere inside the suit to keep air flowing, to go on the nose of a little submarine. I was strapped on the front like a hood ornament to the front of a little submarine. Once we got to the bottom, I had this glorious experience of two and a half hours of walking around, exploring the ocean, but I was in the gym suit, observing the most incredible life and light at the bottom where it was almost completely dark, but I could see the corals that were growing like big whiskers that extended from the bottom of the ocean. And when I touched those bamboo coral, rings of light pulsed all the way up and down these slender stalks of coral. And I think technology is a critical thing here because there's really two things, aren't there? There's being a human being in this environment and then there's technology helping you kind of be a better human, to see better, to hear better, to record better. What do you think about sending robots versus sending humans because basically sending humans is really expensive and the robots you know they just go if we lose one it doesn't really matter what do you say to the people who think we should only send robots to the deep sea it's not either or it's both why would you deprive yourself of being there if you can go and i care about sharing the view it's driven me to work with engineers to start companies so deep ocean exploration and research is now a company that I did start and are developing technologies. We're calling them Deep Hope to be able to take anyone and everyone to a, a thousand meters. I know a bit of it and I really want others to know too. So they will be, they'll be careful. You can't care if you don't know. Sylvia Earle. And you can hear more of my conversation with Sylvia in the next bonus episode, which is out in a few weeks time. Keeping a healthy planet is all about balance. If you cut a tree down and another one grows in its place, well, that's just what nature does all the time. But if the destruction happens faster than any possible recovery, you've got a problem. So how fast can damaged ocean floor recover? Life in deep sea is, is really life in the slow lane. You know, the oldest deep sea animals can live for up to 11,000 years. The reefs form over 10,000 years or more in some cases. So if you go back to one of these locations after it's been trawled, 30 years later, there's often no sign of recovery at all. Professor Alex Rogers is a deep sea biologist and explorer who has discovered entirely new ecosystems lurking in the depths. He's also the director of science at RevOcean, a not-for-profit company that's building the world's largest research vessel to find scientific solutions to major ocean problems. Alex talked me through the damage being done on the seafloor, starting with dragging industrial nets or trawls along the bottom to scrape off whatever might be living down there. The area that I've done most work on has been damaged from deep sea bottom trawling. And as you can imagine, if you drag a trawl over a, a rich coral reef or coral or sponge garden, the impact of heavy steel trawl doors and rollers on the bottom of the trawl is absolutely devastating and certainly look as though a bomb has gone off on the seafloor and all that is left is literally uh, bare rock and essentially gravel formed of the fragments of, of dead coral. 
and people are currently exploring various deep sea habitats with the intent of mining these mineral resources in the near future. It is shocking. What are humans trying to scoop off the seafloor? On the deep continental shelf, mining diamonds, for example, off South Africa. But then in deeper waters, there are three main types of deposit that they're looking at. One are manganese nodules, which go from about conker size up to, I guess, potato size, which actually form on the very deep seafloor in parts of the Pacific, the Indian Ocean and elsewhere. And they take millions of years to form. And these have high concentrations of uh, things like manganese, iron, uh, nickel, various other metals in them. Unfortunately, there are also cobalt crusts, which occur on seamounts in particular areas where the chemistry is is right. And seamounts are very rich in marine life and that life lives on these cobalt crusts. And then we have seabed massive sulfides from hydrothermal vent plumes. And they particularly accumulate in ridges which are forming new seabed very, very slowly. And the reason for that is that hydrothermal vents live for a, a very long time on these slow spreading ridges. So we already have cobalt and manganese because we mine them on land. Why would anyone go all the way down to the deep sea to to fish metals out there? The justification that is being used by the deep sea mining industry is that we're currently contending with a green revolution and current battery technologies rely on quite large quantities of things like nickel, copper, cobalt and other materials which are quite scarce. Also, some of the terrestrial deposits of these metals, which currently mined, are located in tropical areas on land, which host a high biodiversity, but also often in countries which are poorly governed. So there are serious human rights issues associated with mining these metals in places like the Congo and other countries. So this has all been used as justification for diving into the deep ocean. The big problem is that we have a a very, very poor understanding of many of these deep sea ecosystems and therefore a a very weak understanding of what the consequences will be of uh, mining in these ecosystems. Just because we can't get things right on land doesn't mean we then go into the ocean where we've got other problems in terms of understanding the impacts of these activities and regulating them. Well, let's talk about the protections on offer then, because people are starting to talk about the ocean and realise it's not just a great dustbin or just where the fish live, which is is positive. But in order to protect things, you need a bit more heft behind it than that. So tell us a little bit about management and how the oceans could be managed and how this could be done better from a policy point of view. RevOcean is a very solutions-focused organisation Certainly over the last 12 months, we've been involved in what are called the high seas dialogues, which is where delegations from countries negotiating the biodiversity beyond national jurisdiction agreement, which is a new treaty to protect biodiversity in the high seas. We've been involved in those dialogues and helping to advise people on areas of the treaty text where there's uncertainty or disagreement. We have started to set targets in terms of spatial management and protection of the ocean. And at the moment, the current target lies at 10% of representative marine ecosystems to be protected 
in conservation areas or conservation zones. And actually, that target was for 2020, so we missed it. But we did get quite close. So it's estimated that there are around 7% of the ocean now is lies in protected areas. But the notable thing is that the vast majority of those existing protected areas lie in what are called the exclusive economic zones of countries, so within 200 nautical miles of the coastline. And in fact, the figure for areas beyond national jurisdiction are much, much lower. And currently, in fact, there isn't even a legal framework to conserve marine biodiversity in the high seas. And currently, countries are in the process of negotiating a new treaty to enable us to do that. And once that's in place, and hopefully it will be agreed and put in place very soon, then we'll have a legal framework to be able to protect places like the seamounts and hydrothermal vents and so on. And how does enforcement work here? Because one of the things I think that's very important in ocean policy is that, you know, in general, the high seas, just that word is associated basically with lawlessness because you can do whatever you want and no one's going to see you. So when it comes to enforcement of these policies, how important is that? How do we police the ocean in a sense or police the people who are doing nasty things to the ocean? Well, this is where technology is really starting to allow us to do things which we couldn't even dream of 10 or 15 years ago. Satellite remote sensing has become a really powerful tool in telling us what is going on in the ocean. The first use of it really from the environmental protection point of view has been detection of oil spills from ships. And we can pinpoint where and when that spill happened and therefore take action against the vessels. I've undertaken a a couple of studies using satellite radar along with satellite pingers, which are carried by vessels essentially for maritime safety purposes, to actually figure out where and what fishing vessels are doing anywhere in the ocean. And what those studies have shown us is that we can easily detect vessels which have their pingers on, but even where these vessels are supposed to have them on for the purposes of fisheries management, they often switch them off to make sure people can't see what they're doing. But that's where radar comes in because we can detect those vessels to see whether they're following the rules. It is. It's really exciting. I think ships are supposed to carry these for safety purposes and for regulatory purposes. And what's the point if you can switch them off? And so it's, it's great that the technology is getting to the point where you can, can catch them at it. So let's look ahead then to the future. Are you optimistic about the future of the ocean? What do you see when you look ahead? I guess I look at the future with, with mixed feeling. If we do get this biodiversity beyond national jurisdiction treaty, that would be a big step forward. I'm optimistic in that I see the regulatory framework moving forward. But what what makes me pessimistic is seeing how people pervert our ability to implement those rules and regulations and, and move forward. As individuals, we can make choices about what seafood to eat, whether to eat it at all. That can have a significant effect on how the fishing industry moves in in the future. We can join non-governmental organisations fighting for a healthier and better ocean and give them our support. And we can really lobby our politicians to do something about these issues. I find it immensely frustrating to think that we could destroy parts of the seafloor before we even understand what's down there. 
There's this repeatable pattern of human exploitation. We find stuff that might be useful to us, we dig it up, fish it out, do whatever we need to do to get at it. And then later on, in pretty much every case, we discover that our actions were far more damaging than we ever realised at the time. So little of our planet is completely untouched, and the deep ocean is one of the last habitats where we genuinely have the opportunity to actually understand it before we decide whether it's worth ruining it. And this time we really have that choice. Every new habitat on Earth that's been explored has been full of wonder, so there's every reason to believe that this one, the deep ocean, will be the same. We really just need to do better as humans to take the time to understand and appreciate things that are on Earth first before we do anything that harms them. Because the real treasure trove waiting for us isn't another pile of cobalt or manganese. It's much better than that. It's the beauty of the natural living systems of our home planet. Thank you to Professor Kerry Howell, Dr Sylvia Earle and Professor Alex Rogers. Next time on Ocean Matters, we'll be exploring isolated islands. How do they form and how does life begin in such remote parts of the world? I'm Helen Cheresky and Ocean Matters is a fresh air production for the Bertarelli Foundation. And if you have a moment, please do leave a review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe now so you don't ever miss an episode. <laughs>